Well, good morning, and happy Thanksgiving weekend. I guess it is the entire weekend. Uh, some of you are probably celebrating today. Maybe some will celebrate tomorrow. We had our family and our turkey yesterday. So my uh, granddaughter, Aubrey, she just turned three. She asked me why I'm wearing a bow tie. <laughs> and uh, I had to tell her, you know, sweetie, it's, uh, it's just a regular tie. And I said, do you like it? She says, no. <laughs> she says, uh, Papa, you look funny. So uh, I'm going to endeavor to preach this morning through 1 Kings 14. But clearly some of you think I am funny looking. So, But a while ago, I, I brought a message from 1 Kings chapter 12 and 13. And this is the story of Jeroboam, who was given the northern kingdom to rule over. God was going to split the nation of Israel, and this was because of Solomon's idolatry. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 37 and 38, the prophet Ahijah from Shiloh gave this prophecy concerning Jeroboam. He says, and I, and I is God will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and build you a sure house, as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. So God promised to bless Jeroboam, providing that he walk in obedience. In fact, he even gives him an example to follow. Be like David. But evidently, Jeroboam didn't trust God or his word. He feared losing his kingdom, his new kingdom. He thought his people continually going south to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God there, he thought that that would be a problem for him. He, he, he thought perhaps his people would switch their allegiance to King Rehoboam of Judah. So, in order to secure his kingdom, he created his own brand of worship. You know, no need to go south to Judah. He made two golden calves, and he installed them in two cities in the north. And basically, he mimicked everything that worship-goers would experience when they went to Jerusalem. He made his own priests. He made his own holy days. I mean, this was a man-made religion. You know, we often hear the word reformation, and we think of it in positive terms. But Jeroboam's reformed Judaism was a turn for the worse. It may have been very convenient and very practical, but it was false, and God was not pleased. So God sends a prophet to warn him. Jeroboam's altar was split in two. You know, this was a sign that the prophet was speaking for God. And remember, Jeroboam tried to stop the prophet, and then God paralyzed his hand. And then God healed his hand. 
And then later in that chapter, the very prophet that brought this warning is, is judged by God. He, remember, he disobeyed. He was not to eat or drink in that land. And he meets up with a lion on the way home. I mean, this would have been a very powerful object lesson for Jeroboam. God takes obedience to his word seriously. But at the end of chapter 13, we read this. Yet in all these things, Jeroboam did not turn from his wicked ways. So this leads us up to chapter 14. In verse 1, it says, At that time, Ahijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. So chapter 14 starts with the phrase, at that time. It's a continuation phrase. Jeroboam persists in his evil ways, yet God persists in warning him. You know, I, I hope this great truth is never lost on us. God's grace, his mercy, and his patience towards sinners, like Jeroboam, like you and I. So in chapter 14, God brings a new warning. This time, it's in the form of a personal crisis. His son is gravely ill. So the question is, is how is Jeroboam going to respond to this? And that's really what the rest of this chapter is all about. And we see in verse 2 how he responds. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I would be king over this people. So why does Jeroboam want to seek out Ahijah the prophet? Well, verse 2 tells us, says, because he told me I would be king. You know, maybe, maybe Jeroboam is treating God's word here superstitiously. You know, uh, hey, this guy had some good news for me in the past. You know, maybe I can get a, a dose of good news again from him. But I think it's more a sense of urgency. Because Jeroboam's son is sick. He needs answers. This prophet, this Ahijah, speaks for God. He knows it because he said he would be king, and he became king. He speaks truth. But this is also a very strong indictment against Jeroboam's false religion, isn't it? He knows his own self-appointed priests are useless. His false religion was of no help to him when it really mattered. In times of crisis, we need the truth. You know, I find it strange that Jeroboam, up till now, has shown a complete disregard for the word of God. But now, he desires the very word of God that he's consistently refused. The difference now is that he needs the truth. He's in crisis mode. His son is sick. And you know, you've may, maybe you've experienced that in your own life. When unbelieving family or friends come to you in their crisis. And they want you to pray for them. Or counsel them. Or answer their questions. They need the truth. And they sense you have the answers. 
So yes, Ahijah the prophet from Shiloh, he did tell Jeroboam that he would be king. But if you remember from that prophecy, there was also a heavy emphasis on what? Obedience. Strange that Jeroboam doesn't mention that part, isn't it? And I think we can be guilty too. You know, we, we tend to gravitate, you know, towards the parts of Scripture that we like. You know, the promises, the blessings. You know, but those difficult convicting parts, well, you know, sometimes we conveniently overlook them. I think this is, this is really human nature, isn't it? We don't want to be confronted with our sin. So why does Jeroboam send his wife? You know, why not go himself? Why not have a face-to-face with the prophet of God? Well, I mean, isn't this what us men do, you know, when we're facing a real problem? You know, we send our wives. You know, but all, all kidding aside, Jeroboam sends his wife because he knows he is a sinner. He knows he can't approach God. He's not walking with God. He hasn't been obedient. He has not been like David. He's in no position to ask anything from the prophet of God. You know, awareness of sin isn't enough, is it? He was aware of his sin. But awareness of sin must lead to conviction of sin and genuine repentance. We don't see that here. So he sends his wife. But why in disguise? Well, his people in the north, well, they must not know that Jeroboam's wife is seeking a prophet of God. I mean, how would that look? You know, Jeroboam doesn't even trust his own religion. And also the prophet of God, she must not know that, he, that she is the wife of Jeroboam because they would never receive a good word, if any word, from the prophet. So Jeroboam really thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. He can fool everyone. He can fool his own people. He can fool the prophet. And he can fool God. You know, I think this whole elaborate scheme of deception is simply someone trying to avoid dealing with their own sin. He represents, I think, many people today who want to come to God. I want to come to God, but I don't want to deal with my sin. And sadly, many churches today will accommodate such individuals. You know, just just come on in. Don't worry. You know, we don't talk about sin and repentance around here. So Jeroboam is in effect, when he sends his wife, he's saying, God, I need your help, but please don't tell me how to live my life. Answer my questions, but don't question my life. I like what Ralph Davis says here about Jeroboam's relation to God's word. Jeroboam desires only the occasional word of God. He wants the word of God for his crisis but not for his routine or practice. Jeroboam doesn't want to live by the word. He only wants to visit it. 
you know, Pastor Kevin sometimes will have complete strangers call them, and, and they'll ask for counseling. They need help. And our, our, our pastor usually makes one condition, you know, he'll, he'll counsel them, but please start coming out Sunday morning. You know, it seems like a reasonable request. Get under the word of God. But many don't follow through. They're, they're like Jeroboam. You know, they want God to simply fix their problem, not change their lives. So Jeroboam wants God's help, but not at the expense of bowing his knee to him. Instead, Jeroboam lies, relies on deception. And in verse 3, it says, Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. So this gift is not extravagant, and it can't be. It can't be a regal gift from a queen. It's a meager offering from a commoner. So the deception continues. And he says, he will tell you what will happen to the child. So no, no doubt this child, Ahijah, is heir to the throne. So Jeroboam wants to know what's going to happen to his son, but he also wants to know what's going to happen to my kingdom. He wants to know the future. At this point, a lot of commentators quote Matthew Henry, the old Puritan, because his point is spot on. He says this, most people would rather be told their fortune than their faults or their duty. You know, people really are interested in the future. You know, fortune-telling, horoscopes. The American Federation of Astrologers estimate that 70 million Americans read their horoscopes every day. 70 million. I found it interesting that those involved in fortune-telling said they saw a huge increase in business during the pandemic. People really want to know the future. They want information. But don't tell them how to live in the present. You know, I think if, if we had a seminar here on end-time events, you know, maybe we used a real juicy title like The Antichrist Revealed or something like that. You know, I, I think my guess is that the turnout would be really good. I think people are interested in future things, believers and unbelievers. You know, but I think if we held a, a study on Ephesians or we learn about how to serve God in the here and now in the present, I don't know if that would be as interesting. Because I think Matthew Henry's right. People are more interested in their future than in their faults or their duties. So in verse 4, Jeroboam's wife did so. She rose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now, Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. So, you know, this plan is sure to work. I mean, Jeroboam's wife is in disguise, and, and the old guy can't see. You know, his cataracts are in full bloom. But I think this blindness of the prophet really brings out the gist of the story. The prophet can't see, but God can we can't fool God, can we? Do we really think that we can get away with our sin? Jeroboam thinks he can get a word from God through this prophet of God, but somehow God will be, remain detached 
God won't know about it. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jeremiah 23.24, Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Job 34.21, For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. So Jeroboam has a severe misunderstanding of who God is. And we shouldn't be surprised, because how do we come to know God? How do we know God? It's through his word. And yet Jeroboam has rejected God's word at every turn. So we shouldn't be surprised he doesn't know God. But David, the one who Jeroboam was to pattern his life after, he certainly knew God. Listen to what David says. In Psalm 139, he knew God was all-knowing. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my past and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. And he goes on further in Psalm 139 to describe the omnipresence of God. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You know, these, these words, these verses here that I just read, they're both a comfort to the weary saint, yet they strike fear in the heart of the wayward sinner. We can't hide from God. We can't run from God. And we can't deceive God. But it doesn't stop Jeroboam from trying. And verse 5, And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. And in verse 6, And when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. This must have come as a shock to Mrs. Jeroboam. You know, she's unmasked immediately. You know, the ruse hasn't even had time to take root yet. You know, and that's what, that's what God does, doesn't he? He unmasks us. He takes away all the lies, all the facades, and all the deception. And he goes right to the heart. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So Jeroboam, wife, is found out. And by the way, we never know her name. She's always the wife Jeroboam. And I, I think this is also deliberate. 
The writer clearly wants us to focus on Jeroboam in all these chapters. This is about Jeroboam. And the news is not good. In fact, it's unbearable news. Remember Ahijah's first prophecy to Jeroboam? It was so promising. He said to Jeroboam, God is giving you a kingdom and a dynasty. Just obey him. But this prophecy is just the inverse. Jeroboam, you have not been obedient. Therefore, God is taking away your dynasty. So in verse 7, go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel. Here in verse 7, God is rehearsing what he's done for him. God is rehearsing his grace. God exalted Jeroboam and made him the first king of the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam wasn't nobody. He wasn't from royal blood. He, he was a servant to Solomon. And in verse 8, and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. So God gave the kingship to Jeroboam, but at great cost. In that prophecy we read from 1 Kings 11 earlier that day, when Ahijah met Jeroboam, he, he got a brand new coat on. And he tore it into 12 pieces. This is an acted prophecy. He tore his coat in 12 pieces, and he gave 10 pieces to Jeroboam, symbolizing 10 tribes. I'm giving you 10 tribes. And this tearing of a new coat shows how destructive this was and how costly it was to give him the kingdom. It reminds us of the great cost of our salvation. Yet, you have not been like my servant, David. You know, you might say, well, wait a minute, David. You know, what about Bathsheba? You know, what about that incident? What about the calculated murder of Uriah? You know, what about all that? You mean, this is the role model for Jeroboam? But in contrast, when Jeroboam was confronted with his sin, he ordered the prophet of God, stop. But when David was confronted with his sin, you know, when Nathan comes and says, you are the man, David, David is broken. He's broken over his sin. If, you know, read Psalm 51 if you want to see David's sorrow over his sin. If you want to read Psalm 119, all 176 verses, you will see that David treasured God's word. But Jeroboam, trampled God's word. This is the difference. True, genuine repentance when sin was exposed and a love for God's word. This is a man after God's own heart. So Jeroboam had not been like God's servant, David. But in verse 9, but you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images. 
provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. So how did Jeroboam respond to this wonderful grace and mercy that was shown to him? You have done evil. He not only did evil, he became the poster boy for evil in Israel. Done evil, all that were before you. I mean, this could be a reference to Saul, David, and Solomon, prior kings, we're not sure. But Jeroboam had outdone them all in evil. And I think what made his sin worse is that he caused an entire nation to sin. His leadership led Israel away from God. The common refrain that would be used to evaluate all future kings of the northern kingdom, all 19 of them, and all 19 were evil, but this is how they were evaluated. The benchmark was Jeroboam. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Namat, who sinned and caused Israel to sin. What makes God angry? We're told here in this verse. Idolatry. Giving our worship, our love, our allegiance that's rightfully due God to someone else. It's essentially spiritual adultery. And God hates it. It makes him angry. And how does God view Jeroboam's relationship with him? He says, you have cast me behind your back. Wow. What a statement. God wasn't first in Jeroboam's life. God was essentially unimportant, insignificant. All the grace that God showed him, Jeroboam just said no and cast God behind his back. So in verse 10, therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. So this is the end of the line for Jeroboam's dynasty. God has been very patient with Jeroboam. I believe there's a point where God's patience ends. I don't know where that is, but I do know I never want to find it. This phrase burns up dung. Oh, isn't that lovely? God shows the great disdain he has for what Jeroboam has done. The dynasty will be burned up as one burns up dung. I think we get the picture. This is what God thinks of Jeroboam's reign. This is what God thinks of false religion. This is what God thinks of adultery. And the graphic judgment continues. Verse 11. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. I like what Ralph Davis says here. This is good news if you're a dog or a vulture. But it's really bad news if you belong to the house of Jeroboam. This is a phrase that's used often in the book of Kings. It signifies a violent death with no proper burial. It was, it was a disgrace 
It was to die in disgrace. In verse 12, and therefore, arise therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. So this, this is actually the first mention of the child. That was the whole reason for this visit. And we learn that the, the child will die. In verse 13, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave. Because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. So Jeroboam's son, Abijah, will die. He will be given a proper burial. He'll be mourned by the nation. He will not die disgracefully. And this verse says that in some way he was pleasing to the Lord. I mean, this is a little bit of a mystery. It implies that this son must have been old enough to have done something that God recognized. Jewish tradition tells us that, that Jeroboam's son tried to take away the guards that were preventing people going south to the temple. He really opposed his father's religion. But we don't know. That's just tradition. But what we do know is that somehow, although he dies, he's not part of this judgment. And in verse 14, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. This king is Baasha. We read about him in 1 Kings chapter 15. He completely wiped out the house of Jeroboam. Verse 29 of chapter 15 says this, He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he destroyed it according to the word of the Lord that was spoken by his servant Ahijah. Verse 15, And henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scattered them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram, provoking the Lord to anger. So Jeroboam, he only wanted to know the fate of his son. But this is so common with the word of God. It tells us so much more than we expect. His son will die. His dynasty will end. And Israel will be exiled. Not only is Israel's future foretold, but the very nature of that nation, their, their history, is described. It says it'll be like a reed shaken in the water. You know, you can picture a reed just going back in the, with the current. It points to instability. And unstable it was. You know, some of the kings that were in power, were they reigned for a very, very short time. One lasted six months, one lasted one month, and King Zimri, he lasted seven days before he committed suicide. I mean, this, this kind of turnover doesn't lend itself to stability, does it? You know, I think of Queen Elizabeth. She was queen my entire life, almost my entire life. That's a picture of stability. But not only is the turnover quick with the kings, but constant change in the family. You know, God promised Jeroboam a sure house if he obeyed. This was anything but a sure house. 
There were nine family line changes in their history. You compare that to Judah, which had a much longer history. They had one family line through their whole history. So God said that they would be like a reed shaken in the water, and that's exactly what they were. God says he would uproot the nation and scatter them beyond the Euphrates. And this would be fulfilled about 200 years later when Assyria came along and took them away and scattered them. And in verse 16, and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. So the exile of the nation is tied to Jeroboam. He was the founder. He was the leader. He set the course for their direction. It was a trajectory away from God and eventually led to the ruin of the nation. This is Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam's sin, and seldom does sin only affect us. It has far-reaching consequences. Sin ruins everything it touches. So in verse 17, then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed came to Terza, and, she, and as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. You know, if we wanted to make this, uh, this chapter into a theatrical play, and if you had problems memorizing lines, you would want Jeroboam's wife's part, because she has no lines. She doesn't speak in this entire passage. She simply comes, receives the judgment, and leaves. It reminds me of Romans 3, where Paul says, every mouth will be stopped. You know, when God, the righteous judge, pronounces the verdict, what can Jeroboam's wife say? Everything he said about Jeroboam was true. What can she say? Every mouth will be silenced. On judgment day, the unrepentant sinner They will not be able to speak anything in their defense. They will not be able to be in any position to defend themselves, to explain their actions. Every mouth will be silenced. So Jeroboam's wife leaves, and as soon as she arrives, the child dies. And verse 18, and all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken by his servant, Ahijah the prophet. According to the word of the Lord. This is a phrase that pops up a lot in the book of Kings. According to the word of the Lord. Everything happened just as God said it would. The son died, he was mourned, he was given an honorable burial. This was stage one of the prophecy. You know, often in Scripture, short-term prophecies are given and then quickly fulfilled. And this is to amplify the certainty of those prophecies that are yet to come will be fulfilled. And this is great news, isn't it? What God says, he does. Everything God spoke came to pass. God's word can be trusted. You know, when he says he has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west, he has. When he says he will raise the dead, he can. And when he says he's coming again, he will. 
Be encouraged. God is faithful. What he says, he does. So in verse 19 and 20. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. You know, a lot of people read these two verses, and you know they are a concluding summary that's used in the book of Kings, but it would it'd be so easy just to treat it as a footnote, you know, just sort of an add-on. But I think this verse is very telling. It tells us what God finds noteworthy. The rest of the Acts of Jeroboam. You know, if you're interested in Jeroboam's life and you want to read more about him, uh, you can read it in the book of the Chronicles of the King of Israel. By the way, this is not to be confused with our book of Chronicles in the Bible. This is not that book. This was a secular book. It existed when, the, in the, when First Kings was written. It no longer exists. It'd be like, I guess in today's vernacular, if you want to read more about Jeroboam, here's a link to a website. You can check them out. Because it talked about how he warred and how he reigned. You know, so this book, this Annals of the King, it would refer to his military campaigns, how Jeroboam ran his administration, you know, maybe things like how he fought for the underprivileged or revamped the slums of downtown Samaria or how he lowered taxes or built roads. They would all be written in the book of the annals of the kings, if you're interested. But it's interesting, God doesn't mention any of that in Scripture. You know, why are all those details? I mean, Jeroboam reigned for 22 years. Why, why aren't all those details here in Scripture? Because God is not interested in all of Jeroboam's accomplishments. God's evaluation of life is very, very simple. Did they walk in obedience to my word? You know, when you read obituaries, often you'll hear things like he worked at Ford Motor for 35 years, or she loved traveling, or they volunteered at the Humane Society. And all those things are great. You know, a person's legacy should be remembered. But verse 19 tells us that what ultimately matters, ultimately matters is how does God evaluate our lives? God is not interested in our great accomplishments. His interests lie in our obedience and faithfulness. So in closing, you know, this morning's narrative is a pretty heavy message, isn't it? It's a warning message. It's one of those wake-up calls that we find in Scripture. And I want to close simply with two sobering points that really drive home what this passage teaches. Number one, though we may try, we cannot fool God. And number two, God's certain judgment awaits every unrepentant sinner. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we've considered the life of Jeroboam this morning, we see the power of unbelief. Jeroboam did not believe you or your word.
He did not believe you could be trusted. He did not believe you were a God who knows all and sees all. Jeroboam did not believe you were a God of great mercy and grace. And Jeroboam did not believe that you are holy and that you would judge him for his sin. What a wasted life. So much light given. But he chose to walk in darkness. Lord, I pray that you would really humble our hearts this morning. Cause us to look at our own hearts. Is there unconfessed sin in our lives? If so, forsake it. Lord, may we forsake our sin and confess it. Bring it before you. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning or listening online who has not yet trusted in the great salvation offered to us through Christ, Lord, may you break that power of unbelief and open their eyes to the truth. And may you be pleased to save them. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts with the words spoken this morning, and I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Tim.